the fact that there's someone in the industry shaking things up and changing the way that the industry works, that will have an effect on NASA in some capacity. Welcome to lucky episode 13 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. Well, Martians, it's been a wild ride in the world of Mars and space these last few weeks. The subject of our show today, SpaceX's interplanetary transport system, was really the anchor point. But in the lead up and aftermath, we saw a whole lot happening. From the Space 2016 conference to the Mars Society convention, then the International Astronautical Congress, and Musk's big speech capping it all off, well... We've seen a lot. And, you know, somewhere in there, uh, Rosetta landed on a comet. So no big deal, right? So last week in the immediate wake of the announcement, I joined Anthony Colangelo on his own space podcast, The Main Engine Cutoff. We talked about our immediate reactions to the SpaceX plans from the engineering itself to the long-term vision and the plans. Over the weekend, we've had a little more time to think it over and kind of mull it a bit and see all the uh, different articles that have been kind of pouring out. There's been quite a lot of press on this, obviously. Lots of the fanboyism has worn off, our own included, so I've asked Anthony to come in and dig into some of the nuances of the SpaceX uh, announcement and how they've arrived at this moment of realizing their dreams of making humans a multi-planetary species. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad that we're able to do a little bit of uh, kind of sharing each other across shows here. It's been nice. It's been a lot of fun, that's for sure. So maybe before we start then, could you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Sure. So it is, uh, I think, a good, uh, you know, these are good kind of pairings of podcasts to have together. You've, you've got a good focus on Mars and the scientific and engineering side of things. I tend to focus a little bit more on the political decisions that are made around spaceflight. Uh, some of the more engineering types of topics around launch vehicles is something that I get particularly excited about. So talk a lot about those, uh, not just SpaceX, you know, outside of that as well. Blue Origin is really exciting lately. And the kind of changing of the guard at ULA is something that I've been following pretty closely. So it's a little bit different of a focus and it's a weekly show that kind of follows what's going on that week. So uh, not so much breaking news, but more analyzing what happened that week in the spaceflight industry. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I recommend if you haven't listened to our joint Miko episode yet, uh, it's, it's very simple. You need to pause this episode right now, go download it, listen, then come back. It'll give you all the insight you need to kind of see where we were before this and where we are now. Done? Great. Let's keep going. So, Anthony, I kind of want to start it off just by lobbing you a, a hand grenade here. So, is this plan crazy? Like, that's just that's the number one kind of immediate reaction I've seen, and we've had some time now. So, what do you think about that? Certainly, a lot of people are putting the word crazy in the headlines uh, the last week or so. 
I don't think it's crazy, but there are at least two or three sides of that word. I think from the technical side, it's certainly not crazy from the technical side because you look at the the main components of their system and they look largely like what we've seen from them recently. You know, the, the booster itself builds on a lot of what Falcon 9 is doing right. Um, certainly there are different components there. There's different types of fuel used. There's different, uh, you know, the the autogenous pressurization is something that they're changing up on this new booster, but you still have the same grid fins. You've got a cluster of engines, uh, a single stick coming back to land. So there's a lot that they're sharing on the technical side that really bring it into the here and now. Where I think people are kind of looking at it and saying that's a crazy plan are are more they're more looking at the the long term future of the plan itself. Um, you know, when when Elon Musk starts talking about a thousand of these ships heading out to Mars in a single transfer window or propellant depots on the moons of Jupiter. That's the kind of stuff that draws out that talk about a crazy plan. And and that would probably be my biggest criticism of the presentation uh, itself, is that there were times when Elon Musk focused too much on the far future and not so much on how this system itself is going to work. And and at, at times, uh, he kind of went against what he was saying at the outset, which was, I want to make Mars seem possible. That's where he started the entire presentation. Um, but he ended talking about propellant depots on Europa. Um, so I, I thought there was a little bit of lack of focus there uh, when you look at it as a whole. And that's what led people to say, this is a crazy plan that I can't see happening in my lifetime. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's a, a, a part of how uh, Elon Musk tends to present. He he can be a little meandery, um, you know. And so I, I was reading a few articles um, to talk about that. I, this is well, one quote that I can drop. This is from a Mashable article by Lance Ulanoff, and he, he leads off the, the article opening sentence. We now know the full extent of SpaceX founder and CEO Elon Musk's Mars colonization plan and his incredible interplanetary transport system. To be honest, it sounds insane. So that's the kind of stuff that, 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 uh, like you talk about moons of, uh, Jupiter propellant depots, that's kind of eliciting these responses. Now, full credit to Lance. He, he does end the article with saying we can call his ideas crazy or impossible, but then few of us are coming up with better ideas, but, uh, it, it does sort of, um, create this sort of wave of uncertainty. I saw a lot of the stuff on Twitter as well. So I, I don't know if you were seeing this in your feed as well, but a lot of things, um, people really dug into the numbers pretty quickly. And, and, you know, I, I'm not talking about blue egg Twitter users here either. This is a, uh, this is, these are real. I mean, I follow some pretty smart people on Twitter that some of them have been on this show and, uh, you know, they, they, they dig into, uh, things like flight rate or, uh, the population growth was the one I saw a lot of is how are you going to get to a million people in a hundred years. And, and then I saw a few strings that were even going into the terraforming. And I, I don't know. So to me, like, this seems like kind of uh, jumping to conclusions pretty quickly. Uh, my overall impression from this presentation really is is about it's about vision. It's not about you know he didn't lay out the the schedule for the next you know however many years. This is about you know kind of making that paradigm shift. So like, did you see similar things? Um, and and what do you think about that? Yeah, no, you're definitely right that people dug into parts of the plan that, that weren't, really weren't supposed to be the focus of his initial presentation, you know, and uh, again, going back to what I was saying before, I think a lot of that comes from when you look at what he talked about and what he didn't talk about. There's a weird disconnect there. So people are looking at the initial plan for Mars, but he didn't say anything about the way they're going to make methane on Mars. He didn't say a lot about the power generation that would be used on the surface of Mars. He didn't even really talk about cargo and how it would be on, offloaded to Mars, but he did talk about things like propellant depots on the moons of, of Jupiter and things like that. So 
there was this weird disconnect between, um, you know, people saying that he laid out his entire plan when in reality he left out some big chunks. And there's certainly probably a couple of good reasons that those things weren't in there. I've seen some talk that the life support system um, is still a little bit proprietary in nature. So they're not ready to talk about that yet. And there's some things that they are probably leaving out for those reasons that maybe they're not done enough yet. You know, the fly through of the spaceship itself had no internal layout really other than these are the decks and these are the the outside walls, but there was nothing built inside. So there were certainly parts of the technical uh, aspects that weren't ready to be talked about yet. And those gaps in the presentation, I think you're right in that it led people to make some assumptions about the way the entire system would work when in reality, this is the beginning of their work towards that. So then maybe the best way to think about this is to to just take it as a as face value as, as a vision changer and you mentioned that that he said that from the outset i actually have the clip from that so we're going to play that right now just so that the listeners can hear it and i think that if we take this to heart and and look at the whole presentation in this context then we will really get a better idea of what he meant by it what, what i really want to try to uh, achieve here is to make mars seem possible uh, make it seem as though it's something that we can do in our lifetimes um, and that you can go and, and is there really a way that, that anyone could go if they wanted to? I think that's, that's really the important thing. Okay, so let's take it a step further then. So, and you mentioned this, that he kind of laid out some distinct objectives. There were four of them. Um, and when you break these down, they're, they're probably a lot less crazy than the entire plan together seems. Um, and so these are the four, four components that Musk laid out. And uh, together, these ones are supposed to drive the cost down by uh, what he quotes as four and a half orders of magnitude, uh, which is a, a lot of zeros for sure. So we're going to play this clip next. This is just uh, him outlining the, uh, the four main concepts of the interplanetary transport system. These are the key elements that are needed in order to uh, achieve the four and a half order of magnitude improvements. Most of the, the improvement would come from full reusability, somewhere between two and two and a half orders of magnitude. And then the other two orders of magnitude would come from refilling in orbit, uh, propellant production on Mars, and choosing the right propellant. Okay, so I thought, Anthony, maybe we dig into these a little bit because uh, I think the, these are the kind of core components of, of the whole plan, the whole presentation, everything. Uh, and maybe let's talk about each one and, and how how they are going to achieve it and maybe what's already being done in the world of space today. So let's dig into the, the first one. So full reusability. He says this is this is most of where the cost savings are going to be. Uh, this one's pretty obvious, I think, what, what's happening with reusability today. But I thought maybe you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, so they're obviously the leader in reusability today. Um, you could argue that, you know, Blue Origin might be in there as well since they're reflying their booster, but it's it is different kinds of flights. So I wouldn't necessarily put them in the same ballpark yet. Um, we could touch on the space shuttle, but I think it, it's more relevant to talk about Falcon 9 because uh, everything they're doing with the Falcon 9 is is aimed at their reusability plans, you know. Um, and certainly when you look at how accurate they've been able to land the Falcon 9, and they have only done that 10 times, but they're hitting the middle of their landing pads or ships every single time. When you pair that with thinking about landing a giant rocket back on launch mounts, it doesn't start to seem so crazy. Um, when you consider there's still, you know, a good eight years, maybe 10 years from even attempting uh, something on a booster of that scale or landing back on a launch mount or anything like that. So if they're already this accurate at landing the rocket, uh, they're only going to get better at that over the next uh, 10 years or so with Falcon Heavy, with Falcon 9 and things like that. 
And a lot of the problems that they're solving with uh, Falcon 9 reusability, they're kind of focusing on the atmospheric entry at this point. You know, the, the actual landing portion of the flight is not that big of a deal for Falcon 9, but getting back through the atmosphere, through that critical heating phase and all of that kind of stuff that they're working through, those are the pro- problems of the, uh, that they're solving now. Those are the things that they've seen with Falcon 9 that cause the most damage to the stages that maybe, you know, those are the parts that lead to the most refurbishment needs. So as they continue to solve those with Falcon 9, they're going to apply what they learn there back on to this new system. Um, and that's on the Earth side, but then you think about the Mars side as well, because the spaceship needs to enter both Mars and Earth's atmosphere. And that's where Red Dragon starts to come into play, because they're going to get a ton of data out of the Red Dragon entries coming up over the next decade before they even send one of these things out towards Mars. So they're going to be able to have a lot of practice, really, on Earth's atmosphere, on Mars's atmosphere, they're going to have a ton of data to draw on and make a lot of improvements to their system from what they're learning with Falcon and Dragon. That's something I've always admired about SpaceX is they've always found a way to have, uh, you know, their existing customers pay for their future R&D, right? So they've, they, 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 they do one sort of innovation and then they use that for customers and then they use the, those flights to, to try the next innovation. So um, that's... I think that speaks to their you're, you're bang on. I mean, all the different components that are that are coming down here fall into that. Um, what does it say about reusability in general now that we see Blue Origin coming on board and, and maybe uh, ULA's got it coming for their uh, upcoming Vulcan rocket as well? Do you think that that says something about the whole concept in general? It certainly speaks to the fact that we're entering the age of reusability and, you know, entering the age of reusability and how it affects the economics of a launch vehicle. The space shuttle was developed in a different era entirely, and it was developed for reasons that were completely unrelated to lowering the cost of launch. That's what they said at the outset. Uh, but, you know, we can get that's a whole nother show's worth of things and how the space shuttle turned into what it turned into. Uh, so the reusability aspects there weren't really focused on lowering the cost to space access. Uh, And that's what Blue Origin is focusing on, and that's what uh, SpaceX is focusing on. In ULA's case, they're looking at reusability because they need to lower their own costs to compete with SpaceX and to compete with Blue Origin. So it's a little bit different there, only in that the motivations are different. Certainly, ULA wants to lower the cost of access of space, um, but they're being pushed to do it versus you look at SpaceX and Blue Origin. Those are the ones that are pushing to do it because... You have leaders in Bezos and Musk that are focused on something uh, more long-term than just launch services, and all of their plans hinge on getting to orbit at a lower cost. So their motivations are entirely uh, focused on the long-term versus focused on a launch vehicle, which is how we got the space shuttle and anything else you want to throw in the mix there. So I think that's a big uh, kind of dichotomy that you need to look at when you're analyzing this stuff is... What is the motivation for working on a given system? Because that's going to be the driver in what they actually do and the problems they pick to solve and the solutions they end up at. That's a a great way to call out SpaceX's mission statement, right? Which has never been about flying rockets or landing them. It's about making uh, humans interplanetary, right? Yeah. And and you can even look at that with other things that they're doing as well. You know, when they started uh, doing their initial testing for Falcon 9 reusability, they were doing the supersonic retropropulsion tests at a spot in Earth's atmosphere that is exactly that of Mars's atmosphere. Uh, you know, it's 1% of Earth's atmosphere, and that's where they were doing their initial engine firing. So all of the data they were taking from those initial tests is directly applicable to what they'll be doing with Red Dragon in two, three, four years from now. Yeah. So how about refueling then? So this is something that 
you know, SpaceX hasn't done themselves yet, but it's not necessarily a new topic. I mean, we've been doing this for quite a while, right? Yeah, and there's not a lot of history of of experiments that have been flown to do refueling, but there are a lot on the near horizon in the next, uh, you know, five, ten years from from now. We we will see at least three, four systems that use orbital refueling in some way. Yeah, so I, I think the the big challenge with the orbital refueling because um, we've seen fuel transfers in a sense with uh with all the progress um cargo ships to the well from as far back as in the 70s so the salyut station the mir station and then now iss um but that's a little bit different because those are I, i'm pretty sure those are hypergolic fuels so that was uh probably udmh and and uh nitrogen tetroxide right so they're not cryogenic uh which is the the big challenge with with methane and, and liquid oxygen um but that's probably not I don't know. This seems more like just an engineering thing we have to work through. It's 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 not exactly crazy, I wouldn't call it. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it crazy at all either. And when you look at what else is going on in the industry outside of of the typical SpaceX Blue Origin ULA stuff that that we're talking about here, there are other things that are going to lead to refueling services and certainly uh satellite servicing is a big trend in the industry this, you know, these days. There's a lot of companies working towards that kind of idea. And you look at ULA's plans, they call it the Cislunar 1000. Uh, it's kind of a mouthful to say, but their plans also involve a lot of refueling as well. So all of these things that are being worked on in different aspects that aren't necessarily associated with a plan like SpaceX's to Mars, there's a lot of spots where refueling is starting to make sense as the cost to access space lowers and lowers. And that's something that I think, you know, those kind of go hand in hand because you need it to be cheap to get propellant up to orbit in order to have enough propellant in orbit to refuel something. So it's it's a little bit of of something that needs to be solved before we can work on it. Um, but we we are getting to that point when this is something that's going to be critical for all of the plans that we're doing in the next decade. Okay, so how about propellant production on Mars then? Because this maybe is the the craziest sounding one because you know this has obviously never been done before uh the idea of harvesting rocket fuel from the air on the surface of, a, of another planet seems pretty wacko but th- this is not actually very difficult chemistry is it no we've been doing it for a couple hundred years on earth this particular reaction so i wouldn't i wouldn't say this is something that we're we're breaking barriers to do you know certainly doing it on mars is is awesome to think about but the chemistry side is not you know that that's that's been explored pretty pretty thoroughly at this point yeah and i think uh um, dr zubrin who you've had on your show before uh is uh someone who's who's worked on some of those prototypes already to to prove that it's not crazy right yeah he's built a uh a human scale experiment and i i think i don't remember the exact timeline but they built it in a in an extreme rush just to to do a demonstration of it and show that it is possible um and that was you know not they didn't even have a full engineering team on it at the time so uh, if that can be done that quickly on that kind of shoestring budget uh, by just a handful of people, imagine when you put the energy of an engineering team uh, behind something like this. Yeah, exactly. And then the last point he said, choosing the right propellant, which uh, in this case is methane. And we kind of touched a little bit on, on your show on this topic, but uh, I think it was you, you said that we're entering the age of methane, right? So um, what does that mean? Like, what kind of challenges do we have in terms of the whole industry as far as making methane a regular uh, player in our rocket fuel you know, scene? It's interesting that we're just now getting to this point, but when you look at the trends that have been kind of pushing the launch industry over the past 50 years, 
We certainly have used RP-1 a ton. That was the cheap propellant that we used in a lot of launch vehicles. You still see it very common today. The other big player was Hydrolox, was hydrogen and oxygen. That's what's used in the space shuttle. Uh, the Centaur upper stage uses that. So a lot of the higher energy upper stages use hydrogen. And uh, methane kind of sits somewhere in the middle of those. You know, you know, have a different kind of issue to solve with methane because it, it's something that you need to keep cool. It's typically like a cryogenic uh, propellant just in the same way that hydrogen is. Uh, so there's different problems that need to be solved that you can kind of pull on some knowledge of working with hydrogen. But there are other advantages to methane that make it very attractive for a Mars mission, particularly. You don't want to use hydrogen, and he outlines this in the talk a lot, so I won't spend a ton of time walking through this. You don't want to pick hydrogen because that's very hard to create on Mars, and it's also very bulky. It's something that you need giant tanks to to bring around with you in the quantities that you need. So you don't want to lug hydrogen all the way to Mars if you're not going to be able to refuel once you get there. But methane is a great option because you can get there with your system and create methane on the surface of Mars almost anywhere on the planet. So that's that's really the strongest point of methane is that it's something that's accessible to you and you don't necessarily need to worry about logistics of transporting around the solar system as much as certainly we don't know that there's gasoline anywhere else in the solar system. I don't think that there is because I haven't seen dinosaurs walking around anywhere, but uh, methane is, is everywhere. It seems to me that these these four things, these four um, objectives that they've laid out are, are really not that that insane. So the ultimate, you know, the ultimate driving factor here is, is bringing the cost down. These are the four ways that SpaceX thinks it can happen. And if we can accomplish them, then Mars is is just the next logical step from there. So uh, I want to end with just one, the one end this section with just um, one good quote I saw from the uh, space.com article, uh, which sums up the, the, the positive side of this. And, and it says, uh, Musk's extraordinary vision and passion is tugging at the adventuresome spirit of humankind, at least those who hunger to be part of a plan that assures our species becomes multiplanetary. Musk has served notice that building the bridge between the third and fourth planets in our solar system is an attainable and realizable goal. So... At least not all the articles are being uh, uh, critical in, in that sort of unrealistic sense, I guess is what I'll, I wanted to say there. So so the second major thing I want to talk about, Anthony, is the um, is the effect that this, this plan is going to have um, on the rest of the industry. So it's not something I normally kind of dig into on this show, but you're, you're pretty good at, on, on your uh, your podcast, so I thought you'd be a great guest to, to, to bring this up with. So we hear a lot about SpaceX versus NASA. It's almost like this, you know, this new uh, private industry versus government. This almost uh, like a new space race, if there there could be one. Um, I myself don't think that's really a fair uh, characterization of what's happening here. Like, I, I don't think that you know the NASA administrator Charlie Bolden and Musk are sitting in their offices trying to game each other and and, and work out their next moves. But, um, you know, what do you think about that? What are you seeing in, in your circles as far as, as that sort of mentality? I don't think it's a it's a space race between Musk and Bolden. You're right in that. But there there are at least two kind of factions within NASA in the way that the policy decisions get made. Um, and this is seen pretty readily in the Obama administration. Uh, there's a side of NASA that Charlie Bolden certainly represents that is the old space way of doing things, that this is the way that we've run exploration programs, you know, since the 1960s. This is the way to do it, where we do these kind of programs where NASA is uh, contracting out to people like Boeing, Lockheed, and all that that typical crew of, of people. But then there was another side of NASA that started gaining a lot of sway in the early 2010s, 
uh, that is realizing that they can take advantage of the private sector. And this is where we got the commercial resupply service contracts. This is where we got commercial crew out of. And that was a whole movement within NASA itself that said, maybe we can contract out to private companies where they retain ownership of what they're building. They can market it to other people as well. So the space race isn't as much in Musk trying to beat Bolden to Mars, but really that the policy decisions that NASA are making are kind of, uh, there's a tug of war sort of between these two different sides of NASA and the way that leadership at NASA see the future of the agency. That's a good way to put it for sure. And, you know, I, I would go a step further and say that, that, that Musk and SpaceX, they're, they're definitely not out to get NASA. I mean, the, we talked a little bit on your show about this, but NASA's first commercial uh, cargo contract literally saved SpaceX from bankruptcy. So um, I looked it up uh, today and, and the, the contract uh, was awarded on December 23rd and Musk literally couldn't make payroll on January 1st. So there was a week where everything was up in the air and, uh, that that uh, that I think was a one point six billion dollar contract came through and and jump started SpaceX and and now they're you know self sustainable. So I'm going to play one more clip here and this is just from the the presentation as well. Uh, this is where Elon does take the time to call out um, NASA for for all their help and all their support uh, through the through the troubling times for them. And I just want to say I'm in- incredibly grateful to NASA for supporting SpaceX. Um, you know, despite the fact that our rocket crashed. Um, it was awesome. I, I, I'm NASA's biggest fan. Um, so, yeah, thank, thank you very much to the people that had the faith to do that. Thank you. So he goes on later in the talk to talk about how the, how the contract saved them. Um, and, uh, you know, so he's he's... He's obviously enamored with NASA, and NASA's probably going to remain SpaceX's best customer for quite a while. But this doesn't mean that that they're going to explore, you know, separate from each other. So you talk about this sort of almost like a schism in NASA. We could we could we could use that term. Um, so what what is the effect that this presentation is going to have on that? You know, how is NASA's hashtag Journey to Mars trademark going to be affected by by this and and what's going to happen to these two groups within NASA now that this plan is 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 closer to reality I think there's two ways to look at that there's there's the one way that you can look at it and say that a rising tide lifts all boats and that if one part of NASA is putting money into SpaceX and SpaceX is is doing these things that we see them doing and that we're you know watching them do with reusability lowering the cost of access to space they they came in and they were putting pressure on other industry players to change the way that they were working. And this is seen the way that ULA has been trying to renovate their business over the past uh, five years or so with, with Tori Bruno in charge. And that's going to have an effect on NASA no matter what. If they weren't to change a single thing about the journey to Mars, the fact that there's someone in the industry shaking things up and changing the way that the industry works, that will have an effect on NASA in some capacity. But there's the other side that is how do the political decisions get made? around NASA's roadmap. And, you know, it's been pretty turbulent for them the past two decades, really, since we determined that the space shuttle was going to be phased out. I don't think this particular announcement is going to change things. We're not going to see any legislation roll through Congress in the next year or two that changes the, the, out, you know, the overall roadmap. Uh, and that's really because the idea of heavy lift rockets, they've kind of been a, if you build it, they will come sort of thing. It's It's been hard for private companies to invest a lot in a heavy lift rocket because it's not clear that there is a market there for them to put money in. The only market is really, when you look at it, is NASA. They're the ones that that needed a heavy lift rocket in the space shuttle and the Saturn V and 
SLS in the way that they're building it, they're the main partners there. So you're not going to build a rocket to service someone who's got their own rocket. You need other, you know, you need other motivation in some way. So that's why we see the two entrants in this, you know, big heavy lift market with Blue Origin's recent announcement and this announcement from SpaceX. They're people that are motivated by their own concerns and their own end goal. So they're going to build heavy lift. And once that is a real thing, then we will see some changes within NASA. I don't think that NASA is going to get any changes in their roadmap. I don't think that it would be responsible of Congress to make any changes until they see this as something that they can believe in. Because for all intents and purposes, this roadmap from SpaceX is dependent on them staying around and sticking around in business. And I don't think we're going to have NASA fully fund SpaceX over the next decade just to see if this idea may work. Congress itself needs a little bit of reassurance that the that there will be a heavy lift rocket and like it or not there is a heavy lift rocket in sls and that's that's the consistency that congress sees that it needs um so i don't see them relying on the fact that there's two billionaires willing to build a heavy lift rocket and that being enough of motivation to drastically change something until we really do see some hardware start to fly yeah i would totally agree with you on there i mean uh and even just the timelines don't quite line up right i mean even if the first uh, ITS booster flies, you know, eight to 10 years from now. Uh, I, I'm very confident that SLS's first flight will happen in 2018. Um, and so that could have already flown two or three times by then. So the question is, I guess, is that once, once we see that booster from SpaceX start to fly, do SLS and ITS live in tandem or, you know, does SLS have an expiry date? Uh, you know, what do you think about that? It's tough to say, and I think back to the early days of the Obama administration, and you know when his team came in, NASA was trying to put a stake in the ground that was trying to focus less on building a rocket and more on technology development. And in the early days, it seemed a little too amorphous and wandery to just say we're going to focus on groundbreaking technologies, and you know that's famously or infamously, when uh, the uh, Constellation project was taken out of the budget entirely. But that wasn't okay by Congress's rule. They said, we need a rocket to do this. So uh, that's why the Senate launch system is kind of the the uh, term that people like to apply to SLS, uh, because Congress wasn't okay with the idea of changing NASA's uh, roadmap from one that is a full exploration roadmap, not necessarily a schedule or anything. But they were going to focus on building technology and then getting it to orbit somehow. But in the early days of the Obama administration, that didn't make a lot of sense because there weren't these players in the industry. So once there are these established players, and it depends, again, who's in the White House and what is controlling Congress, that idea might start to become attractive again because we will have access to space. You know, if you consider the fact that we have access to space in a certain class of rockets now with the Atlas V, the Delta IV, the Falcon 9, and payloads are built to be flown on those rockets, and that's only because those rockets exist. If there are two or three heavy lift rockets, it starts to make a lot more sense to decision makers to say, maybe we should focus on what goes on top of these rockets and not as much on competing with a rocket that's available in the free market. So to me, I don't think we'll see any big changes to NASA's grand roadmap until the early 2020s when we start to see new Glenn fly from Blue Origin. We'll probably even have heard about uh, new Armstrong at that point in time. Uh, but once this hardware is there, I think we'll see some things start to be to, sh- to start to be shaken up politically. That's a great point. I, I think I, I, I agree with you on all fronts there. So then that kind of leads us into the last topic: is is uh, you know how does SpaceX make this 
what is you know virtually a PowerPoint rocket at this point uh, into a reality. And you know what kind of partnerships are are they going to need? Because uh, like I said, NASA is probably going to remain one of their best customers for quite a while. Um, I mean, to me, the engineering is one thing. We and we talked about that, and I don't think there's anything super crazy there. But the the cost is certainly another one as well, because even for SpaceX and and all the all the billions of dollars that Musk has, this is this is not exactly a, a cheap endeavor, right? So um, he does he did bring this up in the presentation, the, the cost factor, um, and of course he gave a, a reasonably vague, if not comedic, answer. Um, but I want to play uh, this clip as well, just and we'll listen to some of the the ideas he has on on how this is going to work. So the uh, obviously it's going to be a challenge to to fund this this whole endeavor. Um, uh, we we do expect to generate um, pretty decent uh, net net cash flow from launching lots of satellites and servicing the space station from NASA, transferring cargo to and from the space station, um, and um, and then. Uh, I know that there's, there's a lot of people in the private sector who are interested in helping fund a, a base on Mars, um, and then perhaps there will be uh, interest on, on, on the government sector side to also do that. Um, ultimately, this is going to be uh, a huge uh, public-private partnership, um, and I think that's 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 how um, the United States was established, um, and. Uh, many other countries around the world is a public-private partnership. So I think that's probably what what occurs. And right now, we're just trying to make as much progress as we can with the resources that that we have available, um, and just sort of keep keep moving ball forward. Um, and hopefully, um, I think I think as we as we show that this is possible, that this dream is real, um, not just a dream. It can it can so something that can be made real. Um, I think the support will snowball over time, um, and I should say also that um, the, the main reason I'm personally accumulating assets is in order to fund this. So I, I really don't have any other motivation for personally accumulating assets uh, except to be able to make the, the biggest contribution I can to um, making life multiplanetary. So let's dig into a few of those points a little deeper then. So right off the top, he says, um, you know, the, that SpaceX is, is is determined to continue to generate a, a nice bed of revenue from their existing satellite market, from, um, you know, uh, Cargo Dragon and Crew Dragon to the ISS. So my question for you, Anthony, is, is how important is that that business for ITS? That's certainly a big part of it because that's that's what will keep SpaceX solvent between now and when we start to see the flights of, of ITS or whatever else may fly uh, in that time range with them. That's the things that are going to keep them in business and keep them flying and it'll keep the ball rolling for them. But there was something huge that was left out of his talk and something that he didn't touch on probably again because this is proprietary and he can't. But we know there's a giant base of people in Redmond uh, that are working in a SpaceX building there on their internet constellation. And that's something that, uh, I guess you could say he sort of alluded to it by saying launching a lot of satellites, but that's, you know, that's taken as launching a lot of other people's satellites, not as launching a lot of his own satellites. That's something that I think is going to be a giant factor in all of this, because that's certainly giant revenue potential for them with a lot of, uh, it's, it's not as much overhead as launching Falcon 9s every day. If you can get a constellation up and running and build an internet uh, satellite business, 
that'll be a huge source of revenue for them. And uh, they're being extremely secretive about it. So we can't say how big it'll be, what kind of business it'll be. But that's a huge variable that was left out of all of this. And I think that is going to have a lot bigger effects on what he may be able to do in the 2020s than, say, Falcon 9 or Falcon Heavy flights will be. Uh, just sitting from where we are now, that, that's the way it'll shake out in, in my eyes. That's a great point. And you mentioned Falcon Heavy. So is is Falcon Heavy, to me, the, the role of Falcon Heavy is, is a little vague right now. Do you see it more as, as something that's going to contribute to that sort of commercial satellite launch business and generate revenue for them? Or is it sort of an auxiliary player in this whole Mars uh, architecture? The biggest role that it plays right now is in the Red Dragon missions, to be honest. A lot of the problems that they were having with Falcon Heavy, to be honest, from you know what their roadmap looks like, are not technical reasons. As they were getting ready to launch Falcon Heavy every year, they were able to upgrade Falcon 9 and creep in on that space that Falcon Heavy was going to fill. So they kind of ate their own market for Falcon Heavy as they made Falcon 9 as performant as it is these days. You know, uh, in a lot of cases, it's able to lift the heaviest geo satellites that they're launching uh, on a Falcon Heavy or a Falcon 9 launch right off the bat. So the Falcon Heavy... uh, you know, it's, it is a tough market for them because they have small fairings. They they can't launch Bigelow modules under those small fairings. They can't launch a lot of the big DoD missions that require that much payload. So when you're looking at it, yeah, it might be useful for some people, but Red Dragon is where that's the biggest uh, factor in their roadmap. They need Falcon Heavy to fly so that they can do Red Dragon missions in 2018 or 2020, whatever comes first. So the second point he mentioned was uh, interest from the private sector on a Mars base. And this one, he, he did not offer any details on this. And, and I, I can't really recall any specific interest that any company has come out and said, like, yes, if there is a Mars base, I will do this. So in your opinion, what are, what are the prospects for, for commercial utilization of, of territory on Mars? It's a it's it's a loaded question on a lot of aspects because there's a lot of I know there's a lot of people out there concerned about the legality of of building a Mars base or whatever it may be. But we're going to disregard that for now because I think that stuff will be solved by the time we get there. Um, But, you know, in SpaceX's presentation, they didn't show anything about the habitats that would be there. They didn't show anything about the infrastructure that would be built there, uh, whether it be solar cells or actual hardware that they need, cranes, construction equipment, caterpillars probably pumped. Uh, that there's going to be a whole new planet up open for con- uh, construction. But you start to think about people like Bigelow. Uh, I just brought them up a, a moment ago about orbital space stations. But, you know, what's to say they don't want to put a big inflatable module on the surface of Mars and offer uh, flights there on SpaceX's system or things like that? There are people that have hardware that would be useful at Mars that just aren't thinking about it yet because there's no way to get there. So this is the case where Elon is kind of relying on if you build it, they will come. You have to build a way to get hardware to Mars in order for people to start considering getting hardware to Mars. Um, So from the outset, that's tough to say who would be interested. But the good news is they have Red Dragon flights to start to build those uh, relationships. You know, this is something we talked about immediately after the event because we were like, where's all the habitats? Where's all the stuff they're going to put there? It's something that they're going to be able to work on with Red Dragon. They're going to learn how to get other people's payloads integrated into their system, get it to Mars, operate on Mars. There's a lot of stuff they're going to learn from the Red Dragon missions operationally, you know, working with other people in the same way they get hardware to the space station today from be it racks or NASA experiments itself. This is the transportation side of SpaceX, and they've taken it from low Earth orbit to the space station, and now they're going to extend that out to Mars with Red Dragon. So by the time they're flying ITS, they'll have plenty of relationships with these people. 
they'll know who wants to fly things and what kind of stuff they want to fly. Um, so this is something that they have to watch how it builds out and have an open mind to people that would want to fly with them on this system. If we look at Antarctica today, I mean, that that continent as a whole peaks at uh, it's something like over 5,000 people in the summer that are um, almost exclusively just researchers and, and the support staff to support their research. Do you think that that is a, sort of a, a model that we might see on Mars or is that kind of not that close? It's It's got to be pretty similar, at least for the first couple decades of you know, people living on Mars. I don't think there's going to be a lot of rich people that say, I want to retire on the frontier. It doesn't seem likely that that would be a big draw. Certainly, there will be some people that find that very attractive. And, you know, if if Musk wasn't doing this, he would probably be one of the people that would buy a ticket on a flight to Mars. Uh, But the first couple of generations of people that would fly out there are going to be researchers. They're going to be people that are building infrastructure. So I think it will follow that similar model because it's just such unexplored terrain and there's so much to be learned there. That that's that's the most obvious market that they could enter is getting people there, getting science experiments there, and learning about Mars as much as we can. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give one more example here, and I seem to be just drawn to American history when when you and I are, are talking. So, um, but uh, there's a lesson to be learned that that the frontier is historically a, a good investment, and, and if we look back to the Louisiana Purchase, um, is something that uh, that is a, a prime example of that, right? So Napoleon has all this land. And he's trying to fight a war, so he sells it to the United States at, you know, bottom of the barrel prices. So Jefferson scoops it up, and now it's, you know, he's got... It's where we build all the rockets now. (laughs) Now it's where we build all the rockets. And I think uh, he might have made four and a half magnitudes of profit on that. So, (laughs) orders of magnitude. So, that's, that's that's a good point. So... Um, and, uh, you know, the last kind of things I want to talk about here are just sort of maybe some of the, um, the obstacles that this sort of public private partnership might actually lay down. So, um, we talked about how important it is to use Red Dragon. Um, but there, there is some, some legal, I don't know if I want to call it like a, like a roadblock, but, but certainly something that they're going to have to slug through if they want to make this a reality. So off the top of my head, I'm thinking planetary protection, um, I'm thinking the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, which is going to be, you know, all up about who goes to space and how, um, and even uh, something as simple as, as Congress being being Congress, right? So, do you think that that SpaceX is going to play a prime role in 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 tackling that, or are they going to kind of let the private industry, you know, the cargo, the people going, sort of sort that out themselves? They're definitely going to have a big part in it because transportation is a thing that motivates a lot of uh you know legislative changes even on earth you see how many legislation changes are coming because of driverless cars and things like that transportation is a big motivator for regulation so i I, you have to imagine that they'll be deeply involved in those conversations the interesting thing is though that over the last year or two we've seen a lot of uh space resource kind of legislation come about where um people are starting to think about mining asteroids mining the moon things like that and Luxembourg particularly has taken a pretty big stance in trying to be the epicenter. They're trying to be, you know, this is an American joke, I guess, but the Delaware of space resources where it's <laughs> where everyone opens their LLC to be able to own what they mine out there. Um, so it's it's not like SpaceX is the first person interested in doing something like this. Moon Express uh, made a big deal recently about getting licensed for launch to the moon uh, at, the, at the end of next year, I guess it is. They're part of the Google Lunar X Prize. Uh, a lot of these companies like uh, deep space industries, planetary resources, even though they've pivoted at this point, there's a big movement towards mining resources out in space. 
And, you know, while that's somewhat related to what SpaceX is doing, I think that just speaks to the general trend that there are people wanting to move out in a private industry type of way. And all of these things are going to be wrapped up into the same legislation. These are going to be people that are working together. SpaceX is going to be working with the people that are opening up shop in Luxembourg to mine asteroids. Uh, They're kind of going to be the lobbying forces at play in Congress. So, you know, just as much as senators and congressmen from uh, you know, Louisiana or wherever are trying to keep the rocket building business in action. We saw this past week ULA's, uh, I wouldn't call them the ULA senators, but ULA senators uh, sent a note to the Air Force that is trying to kind of meddle with the Air Force investigation, you know, kind of on behalf of ULA. So there's this kind of push and pulling for constituencies. So who says that California of uh, congressmen and women wouldn't start sending letters saying that we need to open up the solar system to private industry. It's it's going to be a big battle, but SpaceX isn't the only one fighting it. Well, I look forward to seeing sort of some of the changes that get ushered in this. I'm a, I'm always been a, a fan, at least when I'm watching from the sidelines, to see sort of you know new technology and new ideas disrupt industries. So, uh, well, here's hoping that that SpaceX pulls it off. Uh, Anthony, I want to thank you for for coming on the show today. I think it's been awesome. We got to talk about some of the more. Um, tricky parts of this this whole uh this whole idea this whole vision um and once again so if you haven't uh listened to anthony's podcast it's 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 really great uh it's low commitment they're not that long most of the time at least yeah they've been creeping Uh, a little longer lately but they've been creeping a little longer but that's okay um that you know every week they come out uh and they're there's great insights to sort of the the as it happens uh things that that are that are coming on so great work and uh keep it up i look forward to your future episodes thank you very much for having me on i'm glad that we were able to do this to kind of have a couple days to let it all sink in because we we recorded the episode uh you know on tuesday right after the announcement so we were kind of uh we've called it a raw reaction episode for that reason so it's good that we've been able to take a couple days let everything sink in and, and really think about what we saw and this has been awesome so thanks for having me on whether spacex plans will be successful or not remain to be seen the gaps in the architecture are numerous but that in itself is not necessarily bad at this point it's early and there's a lot of time left to learn, adapt, and move forward. We just don't know enough yet to predict the success of this program, or realistically make any judgments about its merit. What is clear is that Musk and SpaceX are causing people to think. The sheer amount of press, discussion, and excitement generated by this event is telling, and indicative of the growing passion and zeal for Mars exploration, especially with people. It's a story I've been trying to tell all year, and further convinces me that this is an incredible time to be a space geek. We stand on the precipice of a new age in space exploration. Will Musk and its flashy appetite for risk dominate our way of thinking? Or will NASA's steady, reliable, and risk-averse method win out in the end? Can there exist a world where both play to each other's strengths for optimal success? I don't know for sure, but I'm happy to follow along, and I'm stoked to be a Martian today. That's all we have for today's show. I'll leave links in the show notes for Main Engine Cutoff, the entire SpaceX presentation, and the articles I quoted in the show. If you enjoyed We Martians today and want to help it succeed, please head over to iTunes and leave a review or a rating or both. This is how others can find the show, and by spreading it around, we can get better and more guests on the show. You can also retweet on Twitter or share on Facebook to spread the word. Follow us on Twitter at We underscore Martians and Instagram and Facebook at We Martians. Lastly, you can reach us at info at WeMartians.com with questions or concerns. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for stopping by, and we'll see you next time for the exciting entry, descent, and landing of Exomars Schiaparelli and the insertion of the Trace Gas Orbiter. We've got a great guest lined up. Goodbye, everyone.
Thank you.